Amen. Tom, either you have better eyes than me, or you're short. <laughs> or both. <laughs> okay, now you can go. Is that, is that good? There we go. Thank you. Sure. Anything for my elder. <laughs> <laughs> Let me put that in a different context, because somebody just had a birthday this week. How old? Never mind. <laughs> 63? Or is it 64? 64. We'll go with the uh, 64. Wow. As was mentioned, we are having a, a Christmas Eve service here, 3 o'clock, 5 o'clock. And I want you to be praying about something. <clears throat> I want you to be praying about the people that God has placed in your life that maybe you've been ministering to all year long. Um, and, you know, Christmas and, and Easter seem to be two, um, two weeks out of the year, two services out of the year that people tend to make a priority. Uh, invite your friends. Invite your, the people in your life that maybe don't attend a church, uh, maybe have, you know, never really uh, plugged in. Maybe uh, they're unbelievers. But be asking God who you might invite. It's one of those, um, it, this, just to let you know, I'm going to be speaking on Simply Christmas. Uh, that's the title of it. We're going to read the Christmas story. We're going to talk about its impact, its purpose, why Jesus had to come this way, Emmanuel, God with us, what he accomplished in coming, and it's the gospel message. Uh, Tom's going to be singing, be playing uh, Christmas hymns, songs, uh, ones that people recognize. And so that's what, we're, uh, that's what we're looking at this year. It'll be a candlelight service. So tell your friends about it, okay? A uh, great opportunity uh, to share the gospel. We've been meandering through... Mark here, and we're in a, a section, we're in a passage uh, that is, is really a critical, uh, a critical teaching by the Lord. And on the surface, it looks like he's just poking again at the Pharisees, but really he's drawing a line, and he's alluding to uh, a very, very important truth that all believers have to understand. Uh, and he's, he works at getting his, uh, his disciples to see this picture in this passage. If you've been with us, you know that he's come out swinging, so to speak, come out uh, and made an impact with his ministry uh, early on. He did, he's been doing signs and wonders. He's been doing healings. He's been casting out demons. He's been, uh, he's, he's been challenging the Pharisees in their teaching. Uh, they're already at the point where they want to kill him. They're looking for an opportunity to do so. Uh, but uh, we're going to see that from this point on, although he's still going to be doing some miracles, he's still going to be doing some uh, healing, the emphasis is going to turn more from the multitude to the disciples, 
to the apostles in particular in instruction and training. And so that's kind of where we're heading. But, but he kind of brings it, in my estimation, to a head here uh, in this passage of Scripture. Last week, uh, Bill was in Mark chapter 6, and there we find that they had uh, landed at Gennesaret. Uh, it's on the, the, and he's doing ministry now uh, in the villages, the cities, and the countryside of, of Galilee. And he's drawing, still drawing these big crowds. Big crowds are coming out because he's still healing people. We find at the end of chapter 6 that the people are coming up and, and just grabbing a hold of his robe to be healed. Uh, and so uh, this, is, this is the setting, all right? Uh, in Mark chapter 7, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, I'm going to read uh, the first, I guess, eight verses here uh, to start off with. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain they do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Jesus is giving a stinging rebuke. We're going to look at it in detail a little bit later, but, uh, but he's... he's basically using this opportunity now. He's being questioned. You know, what, you know, why do your disciples not do what the rest of us are doing? You remember they were looking for reasons to, uh, you know, discredit him, to uh, deny his claim of the Messiahship. And so at this point, we see that uh, some of the Pharisees and the scribes have come up from uh, Jerusalem. In the, it was south of there. They had come up from Jerusalem to, uh, to watch, to look for ways to entrap him. And here it is. Here's his disciples. He's, they're watching, and then they're eating. But they're not doing the cleansing of hands the way the elders do the way their traditions are. And so they seek to find fault with him in doing so. And here we see Jesus lay into him, really. Uh, that's, in effect, what he's doing. Now let me back up just a second and talk about these traditions. 
Mary, you've, I've, I've talked about this before, but you have to really understand this to understand why he does some of these things that he does. Why does he refer to these things? Why do they refer to these things? Remember, when man was created, he was, he was filled with the Holy Spirit of God. God and man were united spiritually, living in the same tent. It was the Spirit of God that would lead man into all truth and thus give him the ability by empowering him, guiding him and empowering him to bear the image of God, to reign on this planet the way God reigns over everything. Man was to be a little picture of God in creation. Man lost that ability when he ate of the tree declaring that he wanted to, de to decide what is good and evil rather than trust God for that. And thus he became sin and the Spirit of God had to depart from him. At that moment, he became self-focused, inward reflective, and he became sinful. But he also became totally ignorant of God. He became foolish. The word literally is moronic. He had no wisdom whatsoever. All he knew is he had needs no longer being met, and he had to figure out a way to get them met. God understood this, and so God began to reintroduce himself to mankind. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the man without the Spirit, as man became, in the day that Adam sinned, Adam and his wife, said that the man without the Spirit cannot comprehend the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they're spiritually appraised. Man could no longer see himself from the, from the spiritual perspective of God who is spirit. He couldn't comprehend spiritual things any longer. So God began to teach him with pictures, symbols, types, allegories, analogies, all these, all these ways of, of using physical things to convey spiritual truth. One of these things that he did was he drew a line between clean and unclean. And he did that with the nation of Israel. Prior to Abraham, there were no Hebrews. Abraham became the father of that nation, and they began to be what God referred to as the set-apart people. They were, this, they were in this big picture that God was teaching. He was saying, my desire is to have a personal relationship with my creation. I'm going to create a people to declare that, to reveal that, and I am going to teach them my ways. I am going to help them understand what is wrong with them, and I will use them to declare to everyone else there is a God who is righteous and holy, and there are people who are not. They needed to know the difference between clean and unclean, and of course, mankind, all were sinners. There was none righteous, no, not one, but they didn't know that. So God gave them the commandments to reveal that, not to fix them, to show them they were broken, and to show them that they were inept and unable to keep them. Well, part of that, law, part of that system, and you find out in Leviticus, God declared all kinds of things clean and unclean. Things such as 
if you touched a dead person or anything dead. You were unclean for a period of seven days. Had to be, you had to wash with water. Okay? If, uh, if a woman was menstruating, she was unclean. And if you touched her or she touched you, you had to, you had to ceremonially cleanse yourself. Okay? If you touched a reptile or you touched a person who touched a reptile, you were unclean. All these things, and, and he said the Gentiles, in other words, the non-Jews, were unclean. All these things, so that God was drawing this picture, painting this picture, saying, you know, in the world there is uncleanness. I mean, I started reading through the list, you know, of things that are unclean and what, the, what you must do. Uh, I ran across... I mean, this is pretty obvious, but I ran across a, li across a list in Leviticus 11. It's talking about the fowl of the air, the birds. Uh, it says that you shall detest these. They are abhorrent. Things like, and in the list, seahawks. <laughs> it's in there. Check it out. But there's all these things, cloven-hooved animals, all these different things that the Jew could have, nothing, have no part of. It was all a part of a grand picture. God saying, you know what? You're unclean, and there's all kinds of stuff in the world that can make you unclean. And then they had to, to you know, they would be unclean if they came into contact with one uh, one of these unclean things. They would be unclean most, in most cases till sunset. They had to wash and they would be unclean until sunset and then they would be okay. Okay, again, it's just, it's, it's, not, it's not anything but a picture. But it was the command of Scripture. So along come the Pharisees and as they start teaching the people they start giving them all kinds of what, what are referred to as hedge laws or fence laws, okay? Uh, it was the Mishnah. It means to repeat. And basically what it said concerning uncleanness, I mean, they, they covered everything in the Ten Commandments, but concerning uncleanness, they said, okay, if, if that is unclean, and we're not, and we become unclean by touching it. We'll make a law that says you can't come within three feet of that, or you will be unclean. They added to the scripture. They they started making all these laws and rules that said, okay, we'll define what work is because the law says on the seventh day you shall rest. So we'll define rest by defining what work is. And if you are guilty of doing any of these things, you've not rested. I mean, if you come within so many feet, then you're unclean. I mean, they were doing all these things to kind of keep people from even getting close to sinning. But what they were doing is they were making matters far worse. When it comes to uh, the, the Talmud, which was a combination of uh, the, the Mishnah and the collection of all the writings of the, uh, the I guess, the, the Pharisees, the scribes over centuries called the Gemara. 
the Talmud was a collection of both. And when it got down to it, there were now, by the time of Christ, there were between 26 and 28 chapters on how to wash pots, how to clean pots and utensils. That's why it's mentioned in there. It came down to where it's not just you have to have clean utensils. Here's how they have to be cleaned. There was an entire volume on how to wash your hands. Leviticus said you wash with water. By the time it got to this point in history, it was an elaborate system of cleansing. A whole volume of how to do it. From the fingernail down to the elbow, the number of times, what kind of water, what had to be done to prepare the water, what kind of vessel it had to be in, how many, what you had to scrub with, how you had to hold your hands. I mean, they, it got down to where even the water that ran off, it had to be collected because it was now dirty and there was a whole myriad of things of what to do with that water and then what to do if that spilled on you. And I mean, it was like crazy absolutely crazy and this is what these guys are sitting here going they just broke the law they didn't wash according to the traditions of the elders and Jesus was just waiting for that opportunity he was just waiting for that opportunity and he says, you hypocrites. You don't know what the word says any longer. You don't hold to the scriptures. You don't even hold to what you say is proper. You don't even do it yourselves. Remember what he said in Matthew? I'll read it to you. Speaking of the Pharisees and the scribes, he says, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they all do their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries, they lengthen the tassels of their garments, they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats at the synagogue and respectful greeting in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. He goes on to say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to, the, to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I'd say he's making a point. And the point is, it's not about the appearance. It's not about the outside. He's, the whole law, the actual law, was given to reveal to man that he had a problem and that he needed to be clean. And there was nothing he could do to remain clean. 
There was nothing he could do to be clean on the inside. It was a picture of what was to come in the person of Jesus Christ whose shed blood on the cross, whose spirit who, which was poured out, his life given up for us, would wash the sin away as far as the east is from the west, washing us and cleaning us. Like it says in 1 Corinthians 6.11, you've been washed, you've been cleansed. So that the Holy Spirit could come back inside of man. That's what all of this was pointing toward, but the Pharisees and the hypocrites all made it about, made it so difficult for people so that they themselves would appear to be the only claimant, to be the righteous ones, to be, to be above, to be uh, admired, to be all that kind of stuff. It was all wrong. And Jesus rebuked them for that. And he convicted them of it with the whole uh, issue that follows when he says, and he was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandments of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses says, honor your father and mother, and he, and he who speaks evil of his father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, you do many such things as that. Now he convicts them. He says, you sit and you want to condemn my disciples for not washing according to how you say they need to be washed, even though they're perfectly fine according to the, the word of God. You make up all these rules that you don't even keep. The word of God says, honor your father and mother. And that meant that you continued to take care of them until they perished. And what these guys would do, they would say, you know, say they had a million dollars in the bank and their parents were in need. Well, they didn't want to be responsible for their parents and they would say to their mother and father, well, you know, gosh, wish I could help you out, but all that I have is Corbin. It's been dedicated to God. Therefore, I can't, sorry, you're going to figure out something else. Go hit up my weakling brother or whatever, you know, but I can't. Dedicated to God, pledged. But here's, the, here's what Jesus knew. They had a side law, basically, that allowed for them to use what was dedicated to God any way they saw fit as ministry, taking care of themselves. They could, they could deny their mother and father uh, father's request for $10 to pay that month's rent, but they could take that same money and buy for themselves a luxurious home. That's how it worked. That's what Jesus was calling them out on. And it infuriated them. It made them mad. In Matthew's account, um, it, it says that, do you understand that you, uh, 
upset the Pharisees. <laughs> this, was this was Peter. Do you understand that you have upset the Pharisees with your words? No kidding. No kidding. He goes on to say this, and this is the point of the matter. Verse 14. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defiles the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, Deeds of coveting and wickedness as well as all deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. He's using another analogy here. He's saying, think about it. And remember, God used all of nature Remember, it says that, that all we have to do is look at God's handiwork and get to know him. He used everything about nature to teach us about clean and unclean and, and the beauty, the majesty of God and the power of God and the creativity of God, the wonder of God, the righteousness and holiness of God. He used things that man could comprehend as examples. And here he's using the simple easily understood concept of it's not what you eat that defiles you, it's what comes out of you that's defiling. And he's using digestion and, and the excrement of digestion as an example. He's saying it's not what goes in, it's what goes out. So that he can make a deeper claim, a deeper picture of saying, you know what, you cannot look to anything around you and say, I am this way, I am evil because of this or this or that or this teaching or this influence or this wrong done in my life or whatever. It's what you do with it in, in deciding, do I believe God, what he says about me and what to do, or do I believe me? And we've all been polluted, according to the scriptures. We've all been defiled in our thinking. He says there's none righteous, no, not one. Every single one of us figured out a strategy for life that did not include God. Oh, we may have had a religion, but it did not include the truth of God's word because we couldn't understand God's word unless we were a believer. Every single one of us has made a conclusion, has come to a conclusion of who God is, who we are, where we fit, what's necessary for life. We picked it up here, we watched it here, we were influenced by this teaching and by this commercial and that, you know, uh, pressure 
and, and, the, and the peers around me and, and whatnot, the, the society and the culture that, that we're growing up in, all those things register here. But that's not, even though they may be false, even though they may be out and out rise, they may be defiling, that is not what defiles us. It's what we do with it. Is it true? God says it's not what proceeds out of the man, or it's not what goes into him, it's what proceeds out. That's what defiles the man. Am I living a lie? I was created to tell the truth about God. Is my life declaring truth about God? If it's not, that's what's coming out of me. And there may be all kinds of pollution that made this look like it's right or it makes sense. But that's where I've got to look at it and say, but that is not true of who I am as a Christian. Because if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have looked to Emmanuel, God with us, and his sacrifice for your sin, if you have acknowledged that his blood was shed for you, his spiritual life was poured out for you so that your sin would be washed as far as the east is from the west, and that may be that way and that way or this way and this way. I don't know when I'm standing up here, but it's a long way. It's forever because it's not there anymore. It's not there. And in 1 Corinthians 6, you have been washed. If you have accepted God's invitation of a relationship with him, acknowledging that he did what he did on the cross for you, and you have invited his spirit back into your spirit, you have his spirit, and you are a Christian. You are labeled by what is now on, uh, who is now inside of you. And you now have the ability to discern truth from error. Nobody pushes the clear button. All that junk that defiled us is still in here. That's why we're still on the planet, to get rid of it. Put off the old, put on the new, we're told. We're told that we're to circumcise the flesh. We're to put it off. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we would know what is that good, acceptable, holy will of God. So we'll know how to live. We'll be truthful in our actions. We'll declare God with our life. And we have that ability because he says when you accepted his life, you became a new creation, born again, spiritually brand new, and you're as holy as you're ever going to get. He says you're to put on that, on, put on the, the new you, okay, which has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth, like your Father. That's who you are, believer. Now when you by faith walk in the truth of that, you're declaring the truth about God. Religion is a, is a cheap imitation. It's a sham. It's what these guys were doing. God says, no, we're in a partnership in your life and I'm here to do my will through you if you will but avail yourself to me. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. That's what he's talking about here. It's not about an outward cleaning. It's about an inward 
washing, with the regeneration of the word. Believer, do you know who you are? You're an ambassador of the living Christ. He declared all foods clean because he says, we're done with that. We're done with the picture. Instead, I'm going to leave you with, with two symbols, two symbolic gestures to remind you that we're done with that. One of them is baptism. Baptism is where we, we, we acknowledge our sinfulness, we acknowledge our need, we acknowledge the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the, the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's what we do in baptism. We go into the water symbolically dirty. We go under the water, which cleanses. We come up now clean. We were crucified with Christ, buried with him in baptism, raised with him in newness of life. That's a symbol. It's a picture declaring I'm his and he's in me. The other one is communion, which we're going to share today. This is really what he's talking about here. He's saying, you know what? I will wash the inside of the cup. I'll wash you. You're my vessel. You're my temple. You're my sanctuary. The kingdom of God is within you as a believer. He said, here's what we'll do. He says, I will fill you with my life. And that's what he gave us communion for as a way to remind us of what's happened to us. He's saying, you know, I now am in you. Remember, they, were, they still hadn't got it yet because they weren't Christians yet. Remember, you've got to remember that Jesus was not talking to any Christians. There were none. That's why he said, you still don't understand. You don't understand. They were always asking questions. They weren't Christians yet. They weren't Christians until the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit re-inhabited them. They were still seeing things through physical eyes. And he was explaining these things to them constantly. But to them, he was painting a spiritual truth. And, and remember, he, he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. There goes all his disciples. This teaching is too hard. That's cannibalism. And he says to his apostles, he says, are you going to leave also? But they didn't. And he says, the words that I speak to you are spiritual. I'm talking about a spiritual condition. He had taught them that the life was in the blood. He was taught, they, they, they had all these, uh, this understanding that, that what, what you took into you became part of you. That's why they couldn't eat with Gentiles. Because if they touched this bread, it became unclean, which if they ate it, that means they have fellowship now with the Gentiles. They lost their position. I mean, they had, it, it was an elaborate system, but God's saying, now unless you eat... Break bread with me and eat my bread. Unless you drink from my cup, the symbolism being the, his body broken for us. That's what the bread torn and, and, and bruised and broken. And the cup, 
the drink which represented his blood, his life. Remember from Genesis all the way through, the life is in the blood. That's why they couldn't eat anything with the life of the blood, life of the animal still in it. Everything had to be kosher. Drained of all the blood. A physical picture of a spiritual truth. He's saying, you know what? Now I'm asking you to take my life into you. Share my life with me. Eat at my table. Break my bread. Drink my cup. Share my life with me. That's what we celebrate at communion. It's a New Testament symbol. And he says, every time you eat or drink, do this in remembrance of me. Remember who you are. And remember where I am in relation to you. I now indwell you. It's not just when we do this at church. It's when we do it anytime. Anytime. Because we need to be reminded often. Often. Because we still live in this world. Our mind is not perfectly renewed. We still mess up. We still get ourselves dirty. In other words, we believe a lie and we walk in the lie. We end up sinning. But God says, come to me. Come to me. And remember, I've cleaned you. Where sin abounds, grace abounds that much more. All the more. He says, remember, I died for that sin. You're forgiven. Now let's talk about why that happened. That's what he does. That's why when at the Last Supper, when he, when he was washing their feet and they had such a, Peter had such a hard time with it, he says, I'm, I'm not worthy for you to wash my feet. I should be washing your feet. And he says, unless you, unless you let me wash your feet, you know, you, you, you don't share in my life. And he said, well, then don't just wash my feet. Wash me entirely. He says, no. He says, if, if your feet is clean, then all of you is clean. It's just your feet that are dirty. And that was, again, a symbol, a picture. We walk in this world, and in walking in this world, some of it's going to rub off on us. Some of it's going to splash up on our feet. And so we need, to, we need to confess our sin before God when we know, when we've received the conviction of God. We've got to confess that and say, God, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that that doesn't separate me from you like it did Adam. But instead, your grace abounds all the more. So as Donna comes up to play, here's how we're going to do communion. We're going to celebrate this. There's, uh, there's communion here and there's communion uh, back here on either side. I want you to sit in your seat for just a little bit as she begins to play and ask God, God, do I have dirt on my feet? Have I sinned willfully or unwillfully? God, I want to thank you for your forgiveness. I want, to, I want to celebrate what this means. So Lord, am I walking in error? Am I walking in pride? Or am I walking in, in, in ignorance? Would you show me where that is? Have I done wrong in declaring the truth about you and you just thank him for his forgiveness for what he shows you and then you come up and you take a piece of the the bread which is a cracker uh, and you take the cup of juice 
and you celebrate. The life of God is now in you. If you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, do that today. You don't, while you're sitting in your seat, make peace with God. Accept his sacrifice for you and ask him into your life and celebrate that life with us. That's how we're going to do this. So as Donna begins to play, you pray. When you're finished talking to God about what he wants to talk to you about, you come up or go back there and receive communion and head on out and have a wonderful day. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your teaching. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your death. Thank you for your resurrected life that declared victory over sin. And thank you, Father, that we now share in that victory. I pray that you find us faithful in walking in the truth of your empowerment as we go through this day and the rest of our days. And we'll give you praise and glory for it. In the name of the one who made it possible, our Messiah, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, who is God with us. Amen.